Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, 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 my friends. It is Jason A. Meiske here with another episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for coming back week after week and all of you out there who have subscribed. Uh, yeah, it's the show keeps growing and I have no one to thank but you, the listeners. I appreciate that uh, all of you out there really get some enjoyment out of hearing from new authors. Uh, some new, some not so new. You know, I, I think it's really cool getting to hear a new story every week, getting to talk to these authors, and uh, I'm glad that you're along for the ride with me. So, thank you. I wanted to make sure and let everybody know that our Facebook contact button has now been fixed. <laughs> I, I didn't know that it was broken. Actually, it was my uh, my daughter who helped me upkeep the page. She was the one who let me know that, yeah, somebody uh, couldn't reach out to us and uh, uh, the contact button wasn't working correctly. So, we got in there and fixed that. So, now if you're on the Sample Chapter Podcast Facebook page, if you like us over there and you're following along and you want to reach out and say something, reach out to us or anything at all, then now you can. It's fixed and it's going to let us know that you want to you want to talk to us. And you know, and you don't even have to you don't have to be an author, you don't have to be somebody who wants to be on the show. You can just reach out and say hi or hey, I really enjoyed this episode with this author. You know, and this uh, this story was great. You know, just reach out to me and say hi. I, I would love that too. But if you are an author, and uh, or you know somebody who's interested in you know, perhaps coming on the show and reading a sample chapter, by all means, hop over to our Facebook page and hit that uh, hit that contact us button, or you can email us at samplechapterpodcast at gmail That'll go right to my phone. I know that works. <laughs> hey, uh, as always, I want to give out our big thanks for our sponsor, You Store All of Warrensburg, Missouri. They are the premium place in the Warnersburg area for self-storage. Whether you're looking for non-climate control, conventional outdoor storage, or climate control. Especially when your climate control has air conditioning, heating, and dehumidification. And those buildings lock automatically after hours. So if you want access after hours, you got to contact the office, let them know. I mean... Talk about some extra security. Not only is the place fenced in, not only is it a private gate code assigned to each customer, not only are there more than 40 cameras recording 24 hours a day, but the climate control buildings themselves, you know, you're going to pay a little extra money for that. They're going to make sure that it's extra secure. That building locks down outside office hours. I think that's pretty cool. That's another layer of security that I don't think anybody else can uh, can claim. So. Check them out. It's ustoral.net online. That's the letter U-S-T-O-R-A-L-L dot net. I also want to give a big shout out to Podcast Garden. That's our host with the most. (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't try to rhyme. That's our host site for our show and many, many other shows just like us. There is a ton of other shows available on Podcast Garden that you can go through and find. They also are a fantastic place to go if you're interested in starting your own podcast. You can do that the first month for free. So check it out, podcastgarden.com. So today's guest, uh, we had a wonderful chat with legal assistant and historical fiction writer D.L. Rogers. 
I met DL a few weeks ago at the Riders of Warrensburg. You heard me on the show here talk about that event. And if you follow our Facebook page, then you saw the last video of the day. She was one of the authors who uh, gave us a greeting, said hello to all of you fans out there. And she is now the first person to reach out to us and uh, came on the show. And I had a fantastic time, a lot of fun talking to her. Uh, like I said, she writes historical fiction. Today we got to talk about uh, several of her books, including her new one, Crossfire in the Street, Lone Jack, 1862. Now, Lone Jack is a small town just west of, of me, uh, between Warrensburg and Kansas City. And uh, yeah, there was, a, there was a major Civil War battle there in August of 1862. Now think about that for a minute. This is August. And for those of you not familiar with Missouri weather, from like late June or this year, from May on <laughs> uh, through August, we deal with weather in the 90s and, you know, up to 100. It's just constant sun burning your neck up. You know, the humidity is up. It is some sweltering weather. And I can just imagine what that was like to, you know, if you were somebody a fly on the wall, so to speak, to be there for that battle. And then what may have been happening over the next day or so with all those bodies. And, you know, in talking with Miss Rogers, she said that is something that does come up in her book. So, oh, my gosh. Uh, I, you know, the chapter she reads is riveting, to say the least. I can't wait to dive into it myself. Now, one of Miss Rogers' mottos is bringing history to life through reading. And I love that. She certainly does a good job of bringing history to life through her books. Uh, she writes all of her books. Uh, you know, one of the things that she talked about is how all of her books are based on fact, not political correctness. So they're not, you know, the, the verbiage, the, the way people speak, all of that. It's not uh, something changed to fit into anything today. Uh, right or wrong, it's it is what it was. You know, it's uh, just like if you were reading Mark Twain or Laura Ingalls Wilder, uh, which you know, kind of topical for these days. But you know, it's uh, you read these uh, authors from back in that time, and they wrote how it was at that time. And I think that's something that uh, you know, as a reader, I, I don't think it's a, a big reach to understand. Well, this is how it was, you know, and it's. Uh, you, you can learn from that. You can grow from it as a reader. You can grow from it as a person, seeing how we've changed. And I applaud Miss Rogers for going the extra distance with all of her research that she does. I mean, oh my gosh, she has mountains of research per book to get the, the facts correct. So I, I applaud her for going not only the extra distance with that, but also with uh, making sure that uh, the, the characters are speaking in an authentic way. Why should I sit here and keep telling you about Miss Rogers? How about I get you over there for the interview with her? Yeah, let's go talk to her. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. Today, I am here with a very special guest, D.L. Rogers. Miss Rogers, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm great. Thank you for having me. Ah, oh, it's my pleasure. Now, we we got to meet uh, a few weeks ago with the Riders of Warrensburg event, and you did some teaching, which I really enjoyed, and then uh, we got to talk some more afterwards at our at the book signing event. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. 
Well, I originally hail from New Jersey, and in my travels between there to wind up in Kansas City, I have lived in Connecticut and Ohio and Dallas. And I do have to say that of all the places that I've lived, I have a preference to Kansas City. It's the most personable, the most, uh, you know, every city has its has its issues, but from the time I got to Kansas City, people just seemed more genuine, and so I really like it here. Um, I've always had a love for the Civil War because my mom was from the, the East Coast, and my dad was from Tennessee, and so I always believed that I was a, and this is my moniker, a yebel, half Yankee and half rebel. But uh, it's kind of funny in the in the research for one of my books, I found out that that is not true, that I would have been pure uh, union leaning because of where my dad's people were in Tennessee. So um, it's interesting what research uh, does and, and what you find in research when you're when you're not even looking for it. Um, I am a legal secretary. I work for the Posanelli Law Firm on the Plaza. I've been there for almost 12 years, and I live south of Harrisonville on 14 acres of land with three horses and a number of feral cats, and I am recently widowed. Uh, my husband's been gone for about a year and a half now, and so my brother lives with me, and it's worked out great. We've helped out each other. Um, so, you know, timing is everything and, and the timing for that was, was right. And so I was able to help him and he's been very, very helpful to me. And, um, and in my spare time, I write <laughs> and I've written, I've written 14 books and, uh, I've, I've just put out a new one and, uh, I'm very excited about just events and things that are coming up to share my new book with. And I love meeting what I call return readers, which are people who have bought my books and come back for more. That's fantastic. Yeah, uh, one of the things, you know, when I started this show, I was looking at a lot of regional uh, authors, and I thought, well, I don't know how many people I'm going to find just here in Missouri. And my goodness, there's a wealth of amazing writers in the area. And, uh, I mean, you among yes, them. Yes, there are. So I'll never run – if I just stay here in Missouri, I'm never going to run out of, of great authors to speak to. Um, but I'm just glad to have met you as well, and I'm so happy you've come on here. Well, again, I appreciate it, and you're absolutely right. There are – there's a wealth of good writers in this area. I'm very recently become a member of the Midwest Romance Writers of the Mid – obviously Midwest, and um, – it has been a boon for me to, to be able to associate with published authors who know their business, who aren't afraid to tell you when what you write is not good, and you grow as an author because you're willing to accept that and know that everything they tell you is making you and your writing better. Right. Yep. Now, are you um, indie, or are you uh, traditionally, or a hybrid? Well, I started out as an indie completely, and then I wound up with a publishing house called Awestruck, which was a, was strictly an ebook publishing house. Mm -hmm. 
So they took five of my books and, but I couldn't get hard copies. They only worked in eBooks. So I wanted hard copies. I wanted people to be able to get their hands on them and physically read them. So I wound up finding a local small publishing house. It was called Two Trails Publishing, run by Carolyn Bartels out of Independence. And we worked together for 10 years. And she was, she became a very, very good friend and mentor. She was a wealth of information. I mean, and she pushed me and she made sure, you know, when I got to a certain point and thought I was done with something, she, oh, no, 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 you have another book and you have to do this. Or here's a suggestion for another book. And generally, her suggestions were very, very on spot. And I always did very well with them. And it always tended to add to whatever I was working on or finish it out or take me in the right direction or whatever. She has since, she was older, and so um, she has since retired. She is not publishing anymore, so that kind of threw me into a tailwind, or tailspin, I should say, because at that point I had 10 books that I had out, and I needed to find some way to continue to get them out there. Because I didn't intend to stop writing, and of course, going traditional right now is almost impossible. Yeah. Even though uh, Awestruck was purchased by Mundania Publishing, and having been an, an author of theirs, I could probably go back there and be quote unquote traditionally published. But after having autonomy over everything that I do, I don't want to be under under the thumb of a big trad house that says, I need a book, you know, such and such a time and takes nine months to to get it edited, whereas it takes me nine months to write it. And then my writer or my readers have to wait, um, you know, 18 months before they can get a new book. So at this point, to answer your question, <laughs> I am basically an indie publisher, even though I have been traditionally published uh, in ebook form and have the ability to go with an, a traditional publisher. And okay. I choose not to at this point. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, I know you, you do a lot of legal work. You're, you're uh, working in as, as a, as a, as a lawyer, a legal assistant, legal assistant. Okay. So you have that. Yes. Now, have you always been writing? Have you always wanted to be a writer? The first time I tried to write, I was in second grade. Um, I read every Nancy Drew book that I could get my hands on, and I was going to be you know, the next Nancy Drew book writer. And I know they're all written by different authors, and I cannot for the life of me think of her name, but um, I was going to be the next you know, mystery writer like Nancy Drew. Well, that didn't quite work out that way. I couldn't write mystery then. I can't write mystery now. I like to take the fabric of what I know and weave my characters into it, which seems to work out quite well. Um, I tried again in my 30s trying to do, if you're familiar with the, the movie Red Dawn with Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Um, I tried to do something like that because I came from a very interesting neighborhood out in the country. There were several families, and I thought, oh, what if there was something like that that came up, and how would these – specific families react and 
that didn't work out too well. I had a couple of, my children were still young at that point. And then it was when I got into my, uh, my forties that I, I decided to get serious about it. And I did a Vietnam era book and, uh, it's just kind of been nonstop since then. I wrote, I wrote four to try and decide what genre I should write in. So I have a, I have a, I call it my naughty little romance. And then I have one that's, in my closet that will never come out. And then I did, I did the fourth one, which is, um, was at the time, uh, the beginning of the, uh, trilogy that has now morphed into the series of 10 books, Tomorrow's Promise. And, um, it was when I wrote that that I decided I wanted to do historical fiction. I want to make a difference to people so that they can read my books and actually get some understanding of our history and, you know, hopefully educate them or actually I want to entertain them first and then educate them as a byproduct so that they read it and they go, wow, I never knew that. I want to investigate that. And then maybe actually get a young student or somebody, you know, interested in history. So, yeah, this is this is something that intrigues me is, is a lot of yours take place throughout the Civil War periods. And that was my world growing up. I mean, I was always outside with my, my neighbor friend. We were playing Daniel Boone or Davy Crockett or something Civil War back and forth. Uh, loved it. And uh, so this was right in my wheelhouse. Now, how do you take something of a historical fact and put in uh, figures, uh, fictional figures who are going to be or, or do you are you some of your characters fictional or are they all accurate uh, people? All all my characters are fictional. Okay. Um, however, I do have them interact with factual characters. Mm-hmm. Um, although I have to say, in Elizabeth's War, Missouri, eighteen sixty three, my biggest seller, um, which takes place, I live like I said, south of Harrisonville, and she lived pretty much right near where I live without, within about a two- or three-mile radius. And when I found out about this gal, it was almost like I could hear her saying, you know, write my story. And so I have, and it's it's a lot about Order Number 11 and the vacate order that was established here after Quantrell's raid on Lawrence that uh, General Thomas Ewing out of Fort Kansas or Fort Union in Kansas City decided that it was going to help keep the people from this area from aiding and abetting the bushwhackers. Mm -hmm. And basically what it did, it, it just it destroyed this area for months and months and months because after the people vacated and it was about a 300 square mile area, uh, which encompassed four, uh, four counties after after everyone vacated they came in and they um they burned everything very few homes were left so it was it was a horrible order and when i found out about it i i really wanted to write about it and um elizabeth gave me that opportunity so i i i I look at it like a quilt Mm -hmm. the history is Think, I'm not a quilter, so forgive me if I'm not right, but I think it's the batting that is the history. And then I just take my characters and I, I just have an idea 
or I've from another book that, you know, I've taken and they've been a secondary character and then I decide to make them a first, uh, a, you know, a main character. Um, and then I just, I follow the timeline and I just insert them wherever things need to go. And in this area, there is a wealth of history. So you can, you can just almost throw a stone and find something to write about. So it's, it's an, it's an awesome area for research information. And there are just a ton of knowledgeable people in this area as well that can help you out to get you where you need to go or to proofread your stuff and make sure that it's accurate. Cause I am, my daughter hates this when I say it, but I'm very anal about my research and I want to make sure that I get it right. And so I want other people who know to read my stuff to make sure that it is correct. Well, that's great, though. I mean, I, I and I, I know there's a lot of uh, people out there who really, really appreciate that because there's sure you could go the Hollywood route and make it whatever you want it to be, but people I think can sometimes see through that and go, oh, well, this isn't this isn't real or or whatever. And I think it it adds that extra layer whenever somebody. Maybe maybe it's something remarkable, and then when they look it up and go, "Wow, you know what? Yeah, Miss Rogers was right. This happened, and this is right. this is cool." So, that's... and I've actually had people who have called me or emailed me and said, "I didn't know that," and I Googled it and was blown away when I found out that that did happen. Or I had one guy come up to me two years after he bought Ghost Dancers, as a matter of fact. And he said to me, I was so angry by the time I got done reading that book. And I was like, what? And he said, because I had no idea that the Native Americans were treated so badly. And it really affected him because he, did, he didn't have any knowledge of it. Mm. So, again, like I said, I want to put a great story into a, a setting where people can actually learn some things about our history as they're reading it and question it. And then find out it was true. So that's awesome. So yeah, Ghost Dancers—that's one of them that I've got right now. And then, and you were talking about Elizabeth War. Uh, how about your old cooch stories? Uh, the, that series. What's that uh, like? Oh, the old coots. Well, the old coots were actually introduced in Maggie, which is one of the the original series. Um, and and the way, and I kind of have to go back. The way that the series morphed was that. I started out with one book, never intended to write more than one book, wound up writing a trilogy. The trilogy, I sold it at festivals, and my readers came back a year later and said, I love that trilogy, what's next? And I said, um, it's a trilogy, there is nothing next. And they said, uh -uh. I want something next when I come back next year. So with three books, I wound up writing three more books from the secondary characters that I had already set up a backstory for. And Maggie was one of the books from, again, coincidentally, from Ghost Dancers. And Maggie is a feisty woman of the 90s, even though it's the 1890s. And uh, she's not demure like she's supposed to be or anything. And she actually rides a stagecoach from... Uh, Cheyenne to Deadwood to report on the uh, fire that destroyed Deadwood in or destroyed half of Deadwood in 1879. And the, one of two of the men that she meets on the stagecoach are Sam and Tom, my two old coots. And again, readers, 
said, I love those old coots. Why don't you write about them? So I wound up taking each of their stories that I had set up as a backstory in Maggie and wrote each of their own books. And then I brought them together after 15 years after the war was over and send them to the Black Hills to look for gold to keep Sam, who fought for the Confederacy, um, to keep from losing his home to northern bankers. So the series kind of came all full, full circle without any intentions of writing more than one book. But again, my readers, my readers say, I want, and they get. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's awesome! That's an amazing story, and yeah, I'm, yeah. If the readers are telling you they want another book, then you need to look into that. So, I will have to follow that Absolutely advice. Absolutely right. <laughs> yep. Yes, sir. But, uh, what are you working on now? I am. I haven't started yet because I've, I'm still just getting Crossfire, uh, Crossfire in the Streets, or Crossfire in the Street, Lone Jack 1862, which is my newest release. I'm still getting out of the gate with that, but I am looking at my new book for next year, and it's actually um, a story about, and it's a factual story that I will fictionalize about a woman in Missouri City who was arrested by Union soldiers when she refused to tell them where her husband was, who was a suspected bushwhacker, I believe, and the first day that, that they came and asked her and questioned her, and she said, I, even if I did know, I wouldn't tell you. And she, they threatened to arrest her and or hang her. And she said, wow, you're, you're pretty brave men threatening to hang a woman. And so she kind of put them in their place and they left, but they came back the next day and arrested her. And they paraded her through the streets of Missouri City, which is up near Liberty, and uh, someone in the in the the group in the crowd knew where Quantrill was, or knew someone with Quantrill's group, and they rode out and told him what was going on. And so, what the long story short is, is that it wound up being Quantrill and his men uh, had an attack on the soldiers that basically precipitated the arrest of this woman. And so, um, and that was a factual attack, and people were killed, and and so on and so forth. So um, Jay Jackson, who is a local historian and a friend of mine, um, he and another friend of mine, uh, John Miloski, uh, John is a member of the Civil War Roundtable here in Harrisonville. Both wrote a, a, a spiral-bound book about it. And uh, so they've graciously offered to help me with it and make sure that I get all of, again, the facts correct. Yeah. And uh, so when I when I get back down to it, probably I'm going to say the beginning of September or so, because I've got some stuff coming up. Vacation, <laughs> a much needed vacation. Um, so as soon as I get done with that, I think I'm probably going to settle in and and uh, think about working on that. And because I have to have it out for next June for my readers, because that's what they want. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. And the book we're going to hear today, uh, this is your new one, Crossfire on the Street? Yes, Crossfire in the Street, Lone Jack, 1862. All right. Tell us a little bit about that before uh, before we go into it. 
Crossfire is something that I have basically wanted to write for quite a while because I have been out to Lone Jack on numerous times for events, for reenactments, for lots of different things out there because there is such a rich history out there. And um, when I went the last time, someone was telling me, uh, well, they gave me a brochure that I actually was able to look at the battle. And then they said, you need to look at this um this magazine article called Shot All to Pieces. It's on the website, and it actually breaks down the battle, I mean, by hours and so on and so forth. So I thought, wow, that's perfect. I can actually write this battle with my characters submerged in this battle on an almost, you know, hourly, less than hourly, minute-by-minute basis, which is basically what I wound up doing. But I start prior to the battle with the lead-in, um, what kind of precipitated things. There was an order that was issued, number 19, that basically said if you live in Missouri that you have to join the EMM, the Enrolled Missouri Militia, um, and that was not a Confederate unit. That was a Yankee unit. And a lot of people in Lone Jack did not have Union sentiments. <laughs> so a lot of people were like, you know, we can't do that. So basically, if you didn't sign up for the EMM, you were kind of put on a list. You were watched. Some people were, were charged a tax. And you, you had to give up your guns. Well, people hunted. They lived by their guns. And so it caused quite an uproar. In the meantime, uh, Colonel Cockrell was on his way up with a bunch of Confederate troops coming from Arkansas, and then the Union forces had troops out at Lexington. Well, they wound up converging at Lone Jack, and it was one of the bloodiest battles in the Civil War because it was fought across a 60-foot strip of, I mean, a road, just a road. So you could see who you were shooting at. I mean, there was no question. If you hit somebody, if you shot at somebody and you hit them, you knew it because you were looking at right in the eye. So my story, though, I set up a young family with six children. Um, The oldest is 18, Pete. The next is Cora. She's 17. And then Jesse and Hank. Hank is 16 and Jesse is 16 and then two younger siblings. And... They know the battle is coming, and the father, Artie, he tries to keep them out of it, but as things happen, you know, he just couldn't. And Pete wound up enlisting to keep the two younger boys from getting dragged in and and forced to enlist. Um, I used the word conscripted, but my local people said that they didn't like that word for right then because at that point in time, people were, and this is a quote, flocking to join up with the Confederacy. But I have to believe there were people who had farms with small children who who weren't going to just run off and enlist. Um, And so those were the people that would have been taken. And my two boys, uh, the 16 and 15-year-old, they get a bright idea that they want to watch the battle from town, from their uncle's store. And that is the scene that I am going to read is what happens when they go into town and they think they're just going to be all safe, you know, in their uncle's store and find out that's not quite exactly what is going to happen. Wow. All right. Well, talk about setting the stage. Man, I I need some popcorn before we get going on this. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. 
Uh, I am so happy that you came on. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime, uh, I guess next June with your next book. We'll, uh... Hey, I would love to. <laughs> I'm yours. I'm yours. Uh, fantastic. Thank you so much. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to hand the floor over to D.L. Rogers with Crossfire on the Street, Lone Jack, 1862. The boys froze when the screaming began. Hank peered through the window and would have lost his breakfast if he'd had any. Hundreds of rebels swarmed out from around the buildings they were hiding in, and the Yankees were right across the street. The brightening morning erupted with gunfire as men charged from behind the buildings. The fierceness of the Union response shocked him. Wave after wave of Confederate soldiers were mowed down by Yankee fire. Again, Hank thought he'd be sick. What if Pete was among those soldiers being cut down by Yankee bullets and cannon? How many other friends and neighbors were here? Oh, Lord, we're right in the thick of it. Jesse turned frightened eyes to him. Maybe his brother finally realized how dumb it was for them to be here. I didn't think it'd be like this. Our boys are being cut to shreds, Hank. Tears brimmed in Jesse's eyes. What if Pete don't say it? We don't know where Pete is, and we're not going to borrow trouble thinking he's here. Hank waved at the flow of Confederates charging out from the buildings and north of the hotel. Pete can take care of himself anyway. Pete can take care of himself when there aren't bullets flying, Jesse corrected. Hank didn't respond. He stared out the window. Men ran and died on the street not 20 yards in front of him. He jumped back when several men ran past on the sidewalk. Jesse jumped away, too. The door cracked. Two men charged inside and slammed it shut behind them. Jesse and Hank faced them, arms high above their heads. We're not soldiers. Please don't shoot, Hank screamed. The two men held the shots that would have killed the brothers. What the hell are you two doing here? Hank breathed again when he recognized Bob and Jimmy Howard. They'd been lifelong friends of the Greens. They were in nappies with Pete and were only a few years older than Hank and Jesse. We, uh, we, Jesse began, but couldn't finish. You wanted to see the battle, is that it, you damn fool kids? Bob's shouting was barely heard over the shooting and cannon fire outside. Put your damn hands down. We're not going to shoot you, you idiots. Hank and Jesse lowered their hands and gulped in air to calm their racing nerves. What are you boys doing here, Bob asked again. We did come to see the battle. We didn't think there'd be any harm, Jesse confessed. No harm, Jimmy shouted above the din. Do you see how close them Yanks are? Do you? He waved out the window toward the blacksmith shop and hedgerow where the horses were tied. Hell, I could spit from here and hit one of them. He shook his head. You dumb, stupid kids. Hank stepped toward the older boys, men he amended in his mind since they were the same age as Pete. We're here and there's nothing we can do to change that now. We're just going to stay out of the way and nobody will get hurt. You hope, Bob said. We have no idea where or how this battle is going to go. They could charge this shop in the next few minutes or the fighting could go north. You boys get away from that window. Find some place to hide in case it does come this way. Hank and Jesse stood rooted to the floor in front of the window. Didn't you hear me? Find some place to hide, you stupid boys, Bob shouted again. 
Hank and Jesse remained frozen with fear until Bob stepped forward and shoved them with his squirrel rifle. Don't you hear so good? I told you to find some place to hide. Get behind the counter and stay there. Spittle sprayed from Bob's thin lips and the rifle shook in his fisted hands. Get out of here, Jimmy shouted. This ain't no place for you two. And be quick about it. The Howards stood shoulder to shoulder, their backs to the big window. Hank hurried behind the counter, but Jesse remained. Hank peered out from his hiding place as the cannon exploded again out front. Jesse dropped to his knees and scurried toward a flour barrel in the corner. His brother shoved at it until it rocked away and he slid between it and the wall. Hank sighed in relief, glad his younger brother had caught up with him in size. Otherwise, Jesse might not have been able to move the barrel to use for cover. What now, Bob asked his brother. We wait. I'm not racing back out there to get shot. He pointed at the window. They're mowing him down like hay with a scythe. Bob turned away from the window, Jimmy beside him. I'm with you. We wait. There was a barrage of bullets, and the window exploded behind the Howards. Several large pieces of heavy glass fell and shattered on the floor. The two brothers, standing side by side and facing the back of the shop, stood frozen. As if in slow motion, they turned to each other and blinked with disbelief. Their mouths moved, but Hank heard no words over the noise outside. Tears slid down their cheek. In stunned silence, Hank watched Bobby, then Jimmy, fall to the floor on their bellies. Not a word between them, just a shared look of knowing they were killed. Hank stared at the brothers for long seconds before he scurried to the corner and threw up. Hank! Hank! You all right? Jesse screamed, still hiding behind the flour barrel. Hank wiped his mouth and opened it to answer, but nothing came out. Hank! Jesse's frightened cry came again. I'm all right, Hank finally croaked. His mouth was as dry as a desert and felt like an army had marched through it. I'm fine. The Howard boys aren't fine, Jesse moaned. No, they aren't. No thanks to us. Hank was angry. He wanted to hit something or someone. They remained quiet amidst the continuing firing outside. Hank had to know whether the Howard boys were beyond help. On his belly, he crawled from behind the counter and checked, but it was too late. Neither boy would see the sunset tonight. Bile rose again in Hank's throat when he heard the pounding of horses' hooves from the cornfield on the southern side of the shops. Still on his belly, he crawled toward the shattered window. What are you doing? Jesse shrieked from the corner. I want to see what's happening. Hank grabbed a bolt of cloth from a nearby shelf and tore off a large piece. He wrapped his arm around it, and shoving pieces of glass out of his way, he slithered to the window. Close enough to see out, he raised his head, and was sorry he had. Rebel cavalry rode into town from the cornfield to the right of the shops. The bluebellies were positioned on the other side of the hedgerow, and the rebel horses and riders ran headlong into the two-inch thorns that made up the natural fence. Horses and men screamed as bullets slammed into the riders, and thorns shredded the horses. The cavalry wheeled in confusion as the Yankees opened fire on them. Unable to mount a defense, the cavalrymen turned their horses and disappeared back into the southern cornfield. Hank was scared to death. He was too exposed in this window. Bullets slammed into the buildings up and down the road. Crawling as fast as he could, glass nicking his skin through the cloth around his arm, he hurried back behind the counter. He no sooner got there than hell erupted. 
Bullets flew everywhere. They ricocheted around the shop, smashed into walls, shelves, and stock. Hank covered his head with his hands and curled into a tight ball. The shelf behind him exploded. Something sticky rained down on him and slid down his back like goo. Hank scurried away from whatever it was. He ran his fingers through his hair and over his body to ensure himself that what was all over him wasn't blood. To his relief, his hair and clothes were sticky with molasses and peach juice from the cans on the shelf behind him, full of bullet holes and leaking. Hank! Hank! You all right? Jesse cried from behind the flour barrel. In the short time they'd been holed up here, every time Jesse tried to scurry out of the corner to join Hank behind the counter, bullets had flown. I'm alive and I intend to stay that way. You and your damn stupid ideas, get killed by yourself next time. We're in a heap of trouble, Jess, a heap of trouble. Another flurry of bullets ricocheted inside the store. Both boys curled into balls in their respective hiding spots, arms protecting their heads. Damn it, Jess, if we get out of here, Hank called to his brother. I know you're going to whip my tail. Don't think I won't. Next time you do something stupid like this, you're going to do it alone. In the midst of cannon belches and gunfire outside, Hank heard his brother snicker. What's so damned funny? You with all your cussing and trying to sound all grown up and mad, Jesse shouted. You know, sure as shoot, I didn't talk you into anything. You wanted to see the battle as much as I did. You wanted to see if we could find Pete. Well, Pete could be anywhere out there. Dead for all we know. Now you're so mad at being in this fix, you want to blame it on me. Another flurry of shots shattered more glass and window frame. Bullets bounced off the walls and shelves, slammed into the barrels and counters. Jess, you all right? Hank yelled at Jess's high-pitched shriek. I'm alive, if that's what you're asking, Jesse slung back Hank's words. Stay that way till this is over, because when we get out of here, if we get out of here, I'm going to kill you. And that was D.L. Rogers reading a sample chapter from her new book, Crossfire on the Streets, Lone Jack, 1862. Holy cow, that was something, wasn't it? I mean, I, you could smell the gunpowder. Hey, don't forget to head on over to her, uh, her website. That's www.dlrogersbooks.com. You can follow her there. You can sign up for her email list. Uh, go to her Amazon page and her Facebook page. You can follow along there. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and to sign up and subscribe wherever it is you're listening. And uh, we'll be back again next week with another author, another book, and another sample chapter. Bye.